This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, welcome to this Moneybox podcast. Parents are struggling to get the information they need to take up free childcare for two-year-olds, which is due to start in April in England. Thieves are stealing the identity of bereaved families to steal money from friends and relatives of the person who died. And side hustle hassles. We explain the rules about paying tax when you sell things online. But first, we return to that story of stolen pension funds and HMRC pursuing victims for tax on money they no longer have. There's been a development this week, but first let's hear from one victim of this double attack. Russ Ferris is now a fireman. He had most of his £35,000 pension fund stolen from him, and HMRC is demanding tax on that stolen money. I asked him who advised him to cash in his pension, which dates back to his time at Royal Mail. This wasn't done um, at sort of 3am in a, in a dimly lit car park. This was done in a you know, a, a financial advisor's, a government registered financial advisor's office. This, you know, it was, it was all done in broad daylight and all the, the forms were signed and, and Royal Mail released my pension to these people. So, you know, at no point did I ever think that I was doing uh, anything wrong. The thing is, you know, I've always, always paid my, my taxes and I know how important it is to pay your tax because all your taxes go to um, funding frontline services and I am on the front line. So if your house is burning down or if you find yourself trapped in your car, it's me that turns out. So I know uh, how important it is to, to, pay, to pay your taxes. I've always paid my taxes. I've paid my taxes since I was 16 and I would never, ever dream of entering into anything that I thought was remotely illegal. But the the downside to all this really is is you're not ever really treated as a victim of fraud. Instead you're kind of uh, vilified as a as a tax avoider. Unfortunately. More from Russ later. But this week there was a meeting between government and people campaigning for victims of this double blow. Caroline Noakes was there. She's a senior Conservative MP who co-chairs the all-party parliamentary group on investment fraud. At the meeting, she told Treasury Minister Nigel Huddleston she wanted a six-month pause to allow the development of plans to help victims like Russ. I asked her how the minister responded. I felt the meeting was very positive. He certainly wanted to listen, wanted to understand the issues. I think one of the challenges that we have is that it's actually very complicated and hard to get across in a succinct manner quite the impact this fraud has had on all of those victims. Did you feel that that there was a change in attitude? I felt that the minister wanted to get a grip of this. And for me, that's progress. I want him to give the victims some time to explain the severity of their situation. And I also want the Treasury and HMRC to work together to find a solution to people who are victims of fraud, who effectively are being taxed on money that was stolen from them. The Treasury and HMRC do have a duty to collect taxes, don't they, that people legally owe? And you don't dispute these people legally owe this tax. Why should they be left off? Well, look, what is very clear is that these individuals are victims of fraud and the people who perpetrated that fraud have not been brought to justice. And it feels to me as if HMRC, and you're right to point out they have a duty to collect tax, 
also have a duty to pursue the individuals who were the ultimate beneficiaries of this fraud and not the poor victims who are sat terrified that having lost their life savings, they're also going to lose the roof over their heads. They're going to be made bankrupt. And they are genuinely terrified that there is no way they can pay these bills and that HMRC has not grasped that they don't have the money. How urgent is it, in your view, that they do get at least some some steps towards solving their problems? I think what the victims want is a clear roadmap as to how this can be addressed. They want to see dialogue with HMRC and the Treasury. They want ministers to understand the depth of the problem and the scale of the problem. And interestingly, the numbers of victims are not that high. But for the individuals concerned, this is a matter which is really impacting their mental health, which has a knock-on effect to their physical well-being. We've seen relationships break down. We've seen attempted suicides. And all because really despicable people defrauded them of their life savings. And we don't want the government to then pursue them for tax amounts that they simply cannot pay. Might your proposal set a dangerous precedent, though? However sorry we feel for people, however much they've been defrauded, we can't let them off tax they owe. And these people owe this tax, however unfair that might seem to people. The fundamental issue is that these people's savings were stolen. They're being charged a tax liability on money that they have not seen for years and years and have no hope of recovering. And in some instances, have no hope of earning any money to pay that tax. The stark reality is it could well cost more to pursue these individuals than the Treasury could ever hope to recover. We're asking for a pragmatic solution that looks at the individual cases separately uh, and takes into account their individual circumstances and shows a bit of compassion towards them and recognising that they're the victims of crime. These are not people who set out to defraud HMRC. They were the victims of the fraudsters. Caroline Noakes, MP. I asked Russ Ferris what a six-month pause in being chased for tax would mean to him. Oh, God, I can't tell you how much that would help. No, it's really hard to get across, but it's almost like being held underwater, Paul. And I'm not trying to, you know, sensationalise this, but, um, you know, I've been living in, in really in fear of HMRC and, and you know, it, you know, it's intimidation and... You know, as I say, we're just normal, normal people. So to think that you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to think about this for six months when I've been thinking about this for the last 11 years would be, well, I hope, I pray, I hope that something like this would, could possibly happen, yeah, because that would give me six months where I wouldn't have to worry about it. Or, you know, every time the postman comes and the letter drops on the mat, you know, you're, you're, you're all madly diverted down the hallway looking to see if you can see the envelope on the doormat, that brown envelope. One of the reasons she's asking for a six-month pause is to look at some long-term plan to help the people who are in your position. Um, What would you like that to be? What would you like HMRC to do? Oh, God, really? Just, just Just to be able to speak to you on a human level, Paul, to be able to say to you, look, you know, if worse comes to worse and you have to pay this this money back, you know, we'll we'll sort out some sort of payment plan or we can give you some sort of advice or some sort of help or you know, like like I said to you, there's no there's there, there seems to be no 
ethical boundaries with with these people. It's basically we're going to boot the door off your injuries, and if you haven't got our money, we'll be sending debt collectors around to get it. That's basically what you know how they how they act. You know, it's 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 not as close as that, but you know, I would like to see some sort of support. Like I said to you, you know, you know, I, I am I am a victim of fraud, but I am treated like a tax avoider. What impact has this had on you and your family? It, you know, it's the word I would say is disastrous, really, because um, you know the state of your mental health. And I know that seems to be a bit of a buzzword at the minute, but you know, you, you know, this is constantly on on my mind. You know, and has been for the last eleven years. So like, on on um, on the mental health side of it, it's I can't tell you the impact it has. But you've still got to go work. You've still got to support a family. You still have to be a caring dad. You still have to be a caring husband. Um, but it's very, very, very hard to um to to put yourself to throw yourself into all those um situations when really this this weighs so heavy so heavy on your shoulders i'll be honest if i don't mind telling you this is you know this has broke me on several occasions but you know you still have to get up in the morning you still have to go through your daily routine um you still have to pay the bills um it's tough. It is so, so tough. Firefighter Russ Ferris. The Treasury told us, We sympathise with people who may have lost money by entering such arrangements. We take the well-being of all taxpayers seriously and recognise that dealing with large tax liabilities comes with significant pressure. Our message to anyone who's worried about a tax liability is to contact HMRC as soon as possible to talk about options. It added... We do not tax pension savings lost to fraud. What we do tax are amounts that people release from their pensions where not authorised in law. Which can, of course, as with Russ, be pension savings lost to fraud. Campaigners are due to meet the Treasury again in February. We will, of course, keep you up to date with developments. Working parents of two-year-olds are struggling to get a code they need to register for 15 hours a week of subsidised childcare in term time, which begins in England in April. There are also reports of technical glitches and staff shortages. Moneybox reporter Sarah Rogers is with us. Um, Sarah, you reported on this new scheme earlier this month when Mm -hmm. parents and nurseries began to report difficulties. Where are we now? So this is a story, it's still unfolding with a number of issues. So firstly, this is how it should operate. Working parents need a childcare account, they need to reconfirm their details every three months and this produces a code which parents give to the childcare provider to process. But some listeners got in touch with us to say that they were worried that they wouldn't get their code in time because they couldn't reconfirm their details until the end of March. Now, the funded hours begin on April the 1st, so clearly worries they were cutting it a little bit close. I did ask the Department for Education about this a few weeks ago. It told me it was investigating and working on a solution. Now the government has acknowledged an IT issue and says it will start sending codes to all affected parents next month. Now another concern I've read about is that nurseries, how will nurseries cope with all the extra two-year-olds whose parents want this subsidised childcare? 
Mm, yeah, I have heard from nurseries which have seen a huge surge in inquiries, including Julie Robinson from Bolton. I went to see her when we first ran the story. Demand's huge and we already had a waiting list. We've been inundated with emails. What does that look like for me? Are you able to offer this for me? If you can't, I need to go somewhere else. I know the nurseries around here are already full to capacity. So I don't know how we're going to meet that demand. And then so alongside that, some nurseries don't yet know how much funding they're getting. And this involves money from the government, which is then passed to local councils. They then calculate the funding rate and pass it on. So lots of organisations involved. Yeah, and Sarah Julie said her nursery was already full to capacity. And there were concerns expressed in Parliament this week, weren't there, about the number of staff who will be needed for these extra children. Yes, Labour's Shadow Minister Florence Eshalomi asked Government Minister Responsible, which is David Johnston, about a report that tens of thousands of additional earlier staff will be needed this year as the scheme expands. He agreed more staff were needed and the Department for Education told me a nationwide recruitment came, uh, campaign will be starting shortly. Sarah Rogers, thanks very much indeed. And as I said, that scheme is England. Other parts of the UK have their own provision. Thieves are stealing the identities of bereaved families to try and steal money from friends and relatives of the person who's died. The National Association of Funeral Directors says it's seen a spike in such frauds in the past few weeks. The criminals take online images of the deceased and clone social media accounts of bereaved family members. There, they ask for donations to charity, help with expenses and even pretend to sell access to live streams of the funeral. <laughs> then, of course, they keep all the money. Connor's sister, Vicky, died last year, aged 44, and that was just six weeks after she was diagnosed with cancer. In the following days, a fake profile was set up by thieves asking for donations it said would go to charities. Connor told our colleagues at Radio Ulster it was overwhelming. You know, I was so angry and I was so disappointed and and then a strange kind of I was I was almost embarrassed and I know that's not a rational thought, but you know, I kind of I was kind of taking it on, you know, ourselves, thinking, My goodness, I hope none of our, you know, loved ones, family and friends have fallen victim to this. In this kind of era of social media, I, I really would challenge, you know, the social media giants. I'd you know, I don't I don't believe personally they have the right controls and checks and balances in place. You know, I don't understand how, you know, a fake a fake profile with the same picture, the same name is allowed in, in the era of algorithms. You're completely exhausted as it is and it's just another you know, it's another fired fight and you know, when you're 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 running on vapor uh, as it is, it's it was a very, very difficult time. Connor and the funeral directors took prompt action to warn relatives and friends, and Connor believes no one lost any money. But this wasn't the only a case Radio Ulster heard about. Paige's family was targeted after her grandmother died earlier this month, and a fake profile was created which attempted to charge people for a fake live stream of her funeral. The amount of feelings that were running through my head, it was just... I just couldn't believe somebody could do this. I was on my phone in my husband's car while he was driving, trying to find out what was going on and trying to see who this person was, replying the comments that they had put a link and telling people on the death notice, please don't click this link because it's a scam, it's asking for bank details. It just feels like the day has almost been tarnished by this scam. Paige. Listening to that is Nick Britton from the National Association of Funeral Directors. Um, Nick Britton, we cover a lot of frauds on Moneybox, but hearing the anguish that Connor and Paige went through, this this really is a heartless crime, isn't it? 
Well, it is. It is because you are dealing here with bereaved people, people who are vulnerable, people who are often elderly or who may not be that tech savvy at, at a stage where they are already suffering grief. They're already in a, in a bad place. And to prey on them like this is really truly appalling. Could- and it's a very it's a very sophisticated crime. You know, some of these pages look so genuine that if you're not really aware of what's going on, it's so easy to fall for. How common is it? Well, it's a funny thing. It's cropped up over really in the last three weeks. We've suddenly seen a real spike, as you said in your introduction there, in Northern Ireland. Um, and it's something that I think has been happening in Southern Ireland a little bit, but our members in Northern Ireland have been reporting a lot of it in the, in the, in the last two or three weeks. So it does seem to be concentrated there at the moment. But of course, there's no geographical boundaries to all this. So we're keeping a very close eye to see whether, it, whether it's happening elsewhere. Yes, and Connor and others have reported these scams to Facebook, where the fake profiles often are. Meta, which owns Facebook, says it took Connor's page down as soon as it was made aware of it, though he says it took up to 72 hours, and Page said she had problems persuading Facebook to take the fake page down. What should social media platforms be doing about this, in your opinion? Well, we've had other cases where... Uh, these pages have been reported to Facebook and they've done absolutely nothing. I mean, one which came into me a couple of days ago was reported by a funeral director. Uh, they uh, they said they weren't going to take the page down, but we could appeal to the oversight board, which, in Facebook's words, takes a few weeks, by which, you know, by which time, of course, it is far too late. I think these social media tech companies need to understand the damaging effects that these posts have and these pages have. They need to act quicker to address them And overall, really, they need to take these things a lot more seriously than they currently do. And what can people do who may be in this situation that that someone they know has died and they seem to be asked for money or to help or for charity? How can they spot the fake ones? Well, as I said, it's quite quite difficult because some of these things do look very, very genuine. Um, I would say that, that really there needs to be a collective awareness, really, right across the board here. So I'd urge all funeral directors who are conducting a funeral where there's a live stream to find the link, inform the family of what it is, then, then between them and the family, post that link on as many social media sites as they possibly can and, and tell people who might be wanting to view a live stream only to use a link that's provided by them. Nick Britton of the National Association of Funeral Directors, thanks very much. When new rules started this month, month that will affect platforms which people use to sell things online, and it will affect some of the people who sell on them too. From January, companies like eBay and Vinted and others will have to record and share customer details with HM Revenue and Customs. It told Moneybox that's to ensure businesses operating via these platforms pay the correct amount of tax, and added that if you just sell personal possessions, it shouldn't affect you. But the changes have caused confusion to many people who sell online, like our listener Jim. I always listen to the show. I tend to buy and sell bits and bobs on Vinted. Not much. Sometimes, you know, the kids grow out of clothes and stuff and you, you pass them on. My understanding is if it's over a £1,000, then they have to declare it. But I wasn't sure if that meant if you sold, like, one item that was over a £1,000, they expected to declare that to HMRC. There is something I read called an occasional seller rule, where if you don't sell more than 30 items, it kind of doesn't count. There seems to be a lot of speculation and misinformation. Well, never any speculation or misinformation on Moneybox, I hope. Here to help the confused is Meredith McCammon. She's Technical Officer at the Low Incomes Tax Reform Group. And Meredith McCammon... Let's start first with what the change in reporting means. 
Hi, Paul. Um, yeah, so from the 1st of January 2024, as you said, um, certain online platforms in the gig economy are going to have to start collecting information about people that sell goods and services through their platforms. Um, the information is going to include things like their name, their national insurance number, their date of birth, their address, and also the amount that they're making through the platform. Um, and from January next year, so January 2025, they're going to send this information to HMRC on an annual basis. There so, are some exemptions. One of those Jim just mentioned is the occasional seller exemption. And that's the thing I think that's causing quite a lot of confusion. Yeah. So if you sell less than 30 items or 30 items or less and, and your turnover is below a certain limit, then they won't pass on the information. But what's that limit? Yeah, so if you um, make less than 30 sales in a year and um, it's worth no more than €2,000, which is about £1,700, then the platform doesn't have to pass that information over to HMRC. But what's really important to understand is that what the platforms need to report and what individuals need to pay tax on are kind of two separate things. And the two sets of rules won't always match up exactly. No, well, so they don't example, in this case, do they? So tell us about tax. Jim was talking about second, selling things secondhand, clothes, shoes, his children and so on. From what HMRC say to us, he won't have to pay tax. That's right. Um, if somebody's just selling kind of old possessions, clearing out their attic, their garage, or selling their kind of kids' clothes or toys that they no longer want, then that isn't taxable. It doesn't fall within the kind of scope of income tax because of the nature of the income. And because the stuff is quite low value, it's not counted for capital gains tax purposes. So it's simply not taxable. And that's the case even if the platforms report it to HMRC, it's not taxable. If it's over £1,000, the trading allowance that Jim mentioned, it's not taxable. He can basically make as many sales of his old kind of bits and bobs as he likes. Um, it's not taxable and it won't use up the trading allowance. Now, that's because he's not trading. You mentioned the trading allowance that's a thousand pounds a year which as you as you hinted is different from the reporting limit what is that trading limit so if uh, Jim was doing something else other than kind of selling his old possessions for example if he was um, buying things in specifically to resell like vintage clothes or he was making things specifically to kind of sell on like cakes for example then it's more like he's running a little business and the nature of the income cha uh, changes and in that situation it's probably trading. But this is where the trading allowance comes into play. If Jim or whoever makes um, less than £1,000 um, of income from that trading, and that's before any expenses are taken into account, then the income should be exempt under the trading allowance. Um, there are some complexities in how the trading allowance applies to certain categories of people, but there's lots of information on our website um, and lots of uh, information to help people understand when to report their income and when they might need to pay tax on it. There is indeed. And, and is there a danger, though, that if you sell a lot of items and have a big turnover, even of personal possessions, briefly, is there a danger HMRC will just see those numbers and, and write to you briefly? I think there's um, a danger that they might write to you um, and ask you about the, the kind of transactions that they've seen. But it's simply a case of stating the facts, writing back to them, saying that you weren't trading. It was simply personal possessions. And that should be the end of the story. Um, if, if, you, if you really are going to struggle to make that, uh, write that letter, Tax Aid, the charity, might be able to help you. Or I'm sure we'll put a template letter up on our website at some point. 
Meredith McCammon, thanks. So keep good records. And she mentioned their website, litrg.org.uk. Search Side Hustle. And this week, Moneybots Live will be all about side hustles. Felicity Hanna will be talking exclusively to Dragon's Den star and entrepreneur Deborah Meaden for her tips on starting a business. The programme will answer your questions about side hustles or turning one into a full-time job. Email or record a voice note, moneybox at bbc.co.uk. Well, before you dash off to work on your side hustle, remember to tell your friends that they should subscribe to this podcast too on BBC Sounds. That way, you hear the programme exclusively within a couple of hours of transmission. And, of course, you can listen live if you prefer, midday, every Saturday, BBC Radio 4. We cover many of your stories on the podcast and the first step is to email us, moneybox at bbc.co.uk. We do read them all. In this podcast, the team was Dan Whitworth, Sandra Hardiel, Sarah Rogers and Joe Krasner, studio manager Joe Packman. Our editor is Jess Quayle. I'm Paul Lewis and this was a BBC News Money and Work production for BBC Sounds. And now, the unmissable. The cows are mad. 30 years ago... Britain's farms were hit by an epidemic of an infectious brain disorder. They called it mad cow disease. I'm Lucy Proctor, and in The Cows Are Mad from BBC Radio 4, I tell the story of a very weird time in our history. The media started calling me the mad cow professor. Mad cow disease rampaged through Britain, first killing cows and then humans. And the thing is, after all this time, nobody knows for sure where mad cow disease originally came from. The general feeling is that we will never know the answer. Subscribe to The Cows Are Mad on BBC Sounds.